You want to hear from God today? Okay. You said it. He heard you. I believe he's got a word for us today. Take your notes out. Take your Bible out. And let's see what God has for us today. It has been an interesting morning already. And uh, when, when things seem to sort of go off the expected script, I know that, uh, that God is at work. And uh, so let me say this first as we get into chapter 10 in Genesis Chapter 10 is, is a very broad chapter. Chronologically, a lot of, is happening in these verses, 32 verses there in Genesis 10. And a lot that is happening and is recorded in chapter 10, some of it is before chapter 11, and some of it actually refers to things after chapter 11, um, after the Tower of Babel that we will look at next week. But I want you to stay with me here in this chapter as the nations are, are born, if you will, first explained. And that was actually my original title. It might even be in your notes, uh, the, the Nations Are Born. But as hopefully we will, we will see why, as I got later in the week, I began to see this as defining the nations, Because, listen to me this morning, there is a definer. Romans 15.4, I think I quoted last week, that says, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope. Say hope. So that we may have hope through endurance, and through the encouragement from scriptures. So, we're only covering the first 12 verses of Genesis, but a little bit after that in Genesis 15, Abram has a vision. And Abram, who has been brought from Ur of the Chaldeans up and around and down to Canaan, And he has promises from God, and the Lord in Genesis 15 flashes him forward. And God says this, Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. And they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nations they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you, talking to Abram, will die and be buried at peace at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they, his offspring, will return here, talking about Canaan. For the iniquity, see there's a time frame, four generations, 400 years. For the iniquity of the Amorites, those in Canaan, God says, has not yet reached its full measure. Do not worry if it appears like wicked seem to prosper because God is not done yet. And God is just. God is always just. He knows the end from the beginning. And we are culpable and responsible for our free actions of sin. But God knows 
And God works all things together for his good plans. Now, we know that Moses is credited as writing the first five books of the Bible. Perhaps Adam passed down the beginning. Or God just told him. And, but if Adam passed it down and then another added and passed along to Noah and then he to his son Shem. And perhaps they compiled those chapters 9 through 11. But Moses, the human author inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing this for God's chosen people Israel. So when he writes Genesis 9 that we looked at last week of Noah and his three sons in verse 18, it says Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then immediately he writes Noah, or I'm sorry, Ham was the father of Canaan. And the listeners that Moses was writing to would have said, wait, did he say Canaan? See, he had Israel's attention. And a, a few chapters later, God tells us that the Canaanites, particularly the Amorites, verse chapter 15, were evil, but that their judgment was not yet to the limit. God has a limit. Judgment was not yet to the limit where it would be a just judgment. And so it would be 400 years before they reached that God-ordained limit that would cause just judgment. But now Moses is filling in the gaps for us so that we would know, listen, that God is not arbitrary. God is not random. God is not unjust, but he is patient. And he is holy and he is righteous. And when grace is rejected, then it has consequences. Because we are, we are all sinners. You don't have to say amen, you just say guilty. We are all sinners and anyone can receive grace, but we are all worthy of judgment. We saw last week that Noah, chapter 10, had a weak moment, at least one. And in that case, he became drunk and Ham found him, passed out and uncovered. And rather than have concern and respect, he seems to delight in his father's shame. And he tells his brothers, perhaps brandishing that robe and dishonoring his father. And we said last week that Deuteronomy 27, 16 says that the one who dishonors his father or mother is cursed. So Shem and Japheth, the other two sons, on the contrary, they take that same robe and they avert their gaze. Where their brother had had stared intently, they then walk in backwards and cover their father's shame. And it says, when Noah learned what his youngest had done, he said. Now, don't miss this, because this is point number one. Write down the prophecy. Before we can get into 10, we have to see this. Look, look there with me at, at chapter 9, verse 25, at this prophecy. He said, Canaan is cursed, and he will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan 
be Shem's slave. That's the prophecy that leads into chapter 10. Ham. Now there's a phrase, the sins of the father, right? The sins of the father. Listen to me. The sins of the father are not forced on the sons. Write that down. I do not believe, as some do, in a generational curse to the extent that I've heard some people talk about it. That it's unable to be avoided. The sons are not doomed to repeat without control and culpability, but sin is the curse of every generation, right? And if not addressed... We lead our children in a dangerous, often repeated direction. But still, each generation, each generation has an opportunity and has a responsibility to follow God. Now, with that said, the Canaanites as a people group stayed on this errant path. We've seen this since Genesis 6 as the offspring of Cain did the same thing. And so these Canaanites, offspring of Ham, stayed on this errant path of their father. Some of the commands in Leviticus, for instance, were direct instructions to not do what they were seen being done by the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, son of Ham. They were told not to do what they had seen in Egypt, also descendants of Ham. Ham delighted in his father's nakedness, in his shame, and then his offspring further degraded it to the point of really pagan religious practices to even force immorality on others' delight in it. Leviticus 18.3 talks about it when it says, Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where, they, where you used to live or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You must not follow their customs. See, both in Egypt and in Canaan, they were offspring From the line of Ham. Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6 says, Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love. I love the counter here. Third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So write this down. It's not about a generational curse. It's about the consequences of sin. It's not a curse in the idea of forcing an action on our descendants, but that each generation would have to deal with the consequences for generations to come. We know that's true. We see that lived out, whether it's in a family of substance abusers or a family that lacks faithfulness in their vows of marriage, or a family uh, with a history of physical abuse, even uh, sympathy toward God can be passed along to the next generation. Because, listen, faithfulness to God is also a legacy that can be passed down. And verse 6 says that, The positive result of God's love is for a thousand generations. Ham's son, Canaan, is singled out here. And and 
A lot of error has gone into this chapter when people have, we tend to do that if we just make our own decisions about what this means. And it says that he will be the lowest of servants. Literally, it means a slave to a slave. This is not, this is not a curse on a coming ethnicity, as many have falsely said. Remember, these are brothers. It is a reality of a curse on false choices. Remember again, God is seeing history as a completed page in front of him. And God knows the fullness of self-chosen wickedness. God knows the judgment that would come and how those Canaanites would literally fall off the pages of history. And so he pronounces this through Noah. But then of Shem, Noah says what? Blessed be the God of Shem. I got to tie all this together that we've been looking at for 10 weeks. Genesis 3.15, first promise of the coming of the Messiah, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And so that's said there from Adam's line, and then it goes to Seth in Adam's line, and then it goes to Noah in Seth's line, and now it goes to Shem in Noah's line. And the fulfillment, if you see it, as we go through these chapters, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 is narrowing. Eventually, then, it will narrow to Judah. And then it will narrow in Judah to David's line. And then in David's line, it will narrow to Mary in the house of Joseph. And in that line, as it narrows, will come the only way for all who will come. The only way, the only truth, the only life, and his name is Jesus. I kind of wondered as I just let my mind sometimes wander when I'm reading things like this. Remember, you know, Canaan perhaps was already a little boy in Ham's house. And I, I wonder if perhaps Noah had seen Cain running around and had already suspected that his father's attitude was growing in him. They would be enslaved and it would be because of their wickedness And it would come through military defeat in Joshua and Judges. And so I want you to see this and write this down, that God says what will be, not what must be. Do you understand the difference? God says what will be, not what must be. We still have a a responsibility. We still have an opportunity. And then I think immediately in that line of Ham, there was a woman in Jericho named Rahab. Oh, just because the people of Canaan as a people were wicked does not mean that everybody had to be. And I think of Rahab in Joshua and her family there in Jericho, descendants of Canaan, descendants of Ham. And when they heard about the God of Israel, they believed and they opened their hearts in faith, and they became part of the family line of the Messiah. Do you understand that? Rahab, a descendant of Canaan, a descendant of Ham, became the great-grandmother to David. Because there is always an opportunity 
for salvation. Some of you are here today and perhaps your parents, your grandparents didn't follow Jesus and you broke that curse. The line of Japheth found themselves protected by the line of Shem or if you will, living in the space of and the line of Shem became a people of blessing. We'll see that in the next two weeks. But even then, Paul says in the, Roman, uh, the letter to the Romans, Paul says that the true people of Abraham are those who have been circumcised in their hearts. It's not about where, where we're born. It's about what we do. Because there is always a choice regardless of your name. We read, I think it was last week, from Deuteronomy 30. I love these five verses, beginning in verse 16. As Moses says, for I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands and statutes and ordinance so that you may live and multiply. And the Lord may bless you in the land that you are entering. But if your heart turns away, see, it doesn't matter what your name is. It's about what you do with Jesus. If your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to worship other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land. Verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Say choose life. Love the Lord your God, obey him, remain faithful to him for he is your life. And he will prolong your days. So, we get into chapter 10 and the story broadens. And I'm not going to today to try to read all of chapter 10 because we don't have time for that. And my tongue may get tangled with your tongue trying to read all of those names. No. I'm not going to try to read it all, but I want you to see something. And I would encourage you to go back this week. And hopefully each week you'll take the notes that we give you here today and you'll go home and you break that down. But the story is it's quite fascinating. And all of these nations represented in this list. So write down number two, the families. And I want you to notice as you read this later on, I want you to notice the fathers and the sons. Yesterday, men, we talked about in breakfast. Uh, If you've not been coming the second Saturday of every month at 8 o'clock, we have breakfast here and we open the word of God together. I want you to notice the fathers and the sons because, listen, there is an opportunity to pass down good and a danger of passing down bad patterns. So look at verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Now remember, we said last week they were meant to replenish the earth. They were meant to multiply and fill. They were to advance, as we said last week, the image of God on the earth. Psalm 24, David sings that the earth and everything in it and the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Everything in it is God's. 
Everything in it belongs to him. And we're commanded to fill it. We're commanded to multiply. So oversimplifying this, write down the offspring. And he talks about Japheth and Ham and Shem. And he talks about them in that order. And Japheth, his offspring, oversimplification, but his offspring were the Gentile peoples. Eastern European, Anglo-Saxon, European uh, uh, Germanic. Ham's offspring, his sons became the Canaanite people like the Amorites and the Hittites and others, and they spread into Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia and North Africa and some groups over in uh, remote parts of the Mesopotamia. And then Shem's sons were Middle Eastern and Arabian and Mesopotamian uh, were their homes. And a listing of the nations there going from west to east, from, if you will, Spain to Iran and south to north, Arabia to the mountains around the Black Sea and the Caspian Seas, 70 countries are represented in those verses. And verse 32 then ends chapter 10 by saying, These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their family records in their nations. And the nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. Seventy nations, not meant to be exclusive, not meant to be exhaustive, but it's meant to be a picture of all of them. And the fact that it refers to sons doesn't mean they didn't have daughters, and it doesn't mean they didn't have more sons. It's a complete number. It's a, it's a combination of the sum of sevens and tens, both complete numbers. But as I read that, there were just a couple of things I wanted to draw attention to before we get to what I really wanted you to see and finish with today. First, in Japheth, there's a son named Elisha. From him came the Peloponnesian people groups, Greek people. But his name means God is salvation because yes, yes, he is. And he's for everyone, not just Shem's line. And then we shift in there to Ham, That disgraceful son, obviously bitter and angry with his father, and he rebels and he revels in his father's shame. And he's told that his his offspring through Canaan would be servants. Interestingly, that's only said about Canaan's offspring, not about Ham's offspring. It's said about Canaan's offspring. But perhaps all of Ham's sons were taught by their father, we will not be that way. We will not be anyone's servant much like the offspring of Cain, when they were told they would be wanderers, decided, no, we're going to build cities. And I think I said several weeks ago, I'd rather wander with God than build the greatest city. And so then when I think about this, I would rather be a servant for God than be the strongest leader of a man away from God. And when you look there, I want you to notice in verse 9, it talks about Ham's oldest son, Cush. And it seems like to me, as I read between the lines here, that Cush seemed to take this really to heart. Not wanting to be a servant, even though God said they would be servants. And, And he fathered a son and he named him Nimrod. And interestingly, most of the other men, the offspring that are listed, they're just kind of listed in passing. They're just bop, 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 Nimrod is given five verses, which is a lot in this chapter. What do we know about him? Well, he was not going to be a slave to anyone. 
And verse 9 says that he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. And that, that phrase literally means in the face of. He was going to be a powerful hunter in the face of or in rebellion to the Lord. His name literally means he rebelled. Some even suggest that it means that his people were hunting people to bring them into his way, capturing people and saying, you're going to go our way. He sought to draw people away from worshiping God and worshiping him. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the evil one, the serpent in the garden. And Nimrod, we know, founded Babylon and founded Nineveh, among other cities. And we know about Nineveh that Jonah was commanded to preach against it because their evil, their wickedness, God says, has come before me. But we also know that that generation in Nineveh, when they heard the truth, what they do? They repented. And God spared them for a hundred years. hundred years later, people came back around and wickedness returned and God wiped them off of the face of the earth. But Nimrod's first city was Babylon. Talk about that a little more next week. But if you look at history, and you look in Scripture and in secular history outside of Scripture, Babylon has always been there, hasn't it? From this time on, it's always been there. It's still there. And it historically has been opposed to Jehovah. And when you read the Revelation, you find it will continue to be known that way until the end. And it is not by accident that these are the places that Nimrod founded. Because if you read his history, you will find that they saw him as a god. And his wife gave birth to a son, and they said he was a god. And they said that that son died and that he was resurrected. And they worshipped the mother and the child. Similarly, they worshiped in Assyria. And in Ezekiel 8, 14, talks about God's people weeping for Tammuz at the entrance of the temple. That was a false worship that was passed down from Nimrod of mother and son. And you see it again in Revelation 17. And you find Babylonian idolatry worshiping mother and child. Ham's son, Canaan. What you should know about them is that they were people of witchcraft and fortune-telling that would try to cast spells and awaken the dead and involve sensuality and licentiousness and snake worship and child sacrifices were all part of what they did. And they, they came to a time when their wickedness was full and God judged them. And so then there is Shem. Two things for me that show the difference between Ham's line and Shem's line. And this is the point that we'll move to finish to very quickly when we get there. Shem is the first. He is the father of sons of Eber, E-B-E-R. Now remember, I'm bringing you somewhere. Moses is writing this to whom? Israel. 
and he's leading the children of Israel. Eber was not Shem's son. He was his great-great-grandson. Shem fathered Arpachshad, who fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber, who fathered Peleg, who fathered Reu, who fathered Serug, who fathered Nahor, who fathered Terah, who fathered Abram. Eber is the father whose name then became the formation for Hebrews. And we're seeing this plan of God from Genesis 3.15 narrowing. Look at verse 24. Arpachshad fathered Shelah. Shelah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons, one named Peleg. For during his days, the earth was what? Divided. Can we relate? It seems to me then, knowing what's coming in chapter 11, that Peleg must have been born during the times of the Tower of Babel. But the division is deeper than that. We have, we have seen it as we have read who, of folks who live in days that are divided. And so in, in, in keeping the main thing the main thing and bringing this down to a focus, as we have walked through these chapters, one through nine, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've tried to get you to see it and keep coming back to it that the division that is happening from the very beginning between Cain and Abel and on down through the division that is happening is the division between right and wrong. It's a division between who you worship. See, I said the title would be, The Nations Are Defined. And this division is not about ethnicity. Remember, these are all from the same family. The division is not even about where they lived because God wanted them to spread out. To follow his commands, though, he wanted them to do that in unity. We can be unified and live in different places. The division, and here's what it is that defines us, the division was over who would be worshipped. It was over who would be Lord. And I say that to say that we must be certain that we don't spend our time dividing needlessly over race and politics and preferences. And let the only thing that divide us be the Lord God. But hear me, I'm not saying that we would seek to divide from anyone that doesn't worship God. As we often do. That's not what God wanted. God wants us to reach out to every person. Israel wasn't God's people so that they would be exclusive. They were God's people so that they would be a light. God wants us to reach out to every person. God wants us to reach out to every nation. And God had had clearly revealed himself to all of Noah's sons. He had revealed himself to all of their sons. You probably thought over the last couple of minutes, where's he going? Is he getting to something? 
I'm always getting to something. And you are wondering, where is he going with all these observations? Remember, Romans 15 says that these stories are there so that we may know and trust God. And I've read Revelation 7, 9. And I know that one day we will stand before the throne of every race, tribe, color, and tongue. So God is calling everyone. Yes, he has a unique people not to divide us, but to display his glory and call everyone to himself. And we read Acts chapter 2, and we find that God's Spirit was poured out at Pentecost on a gathering of seekers of God from every nation under heaven. Folks, regardless of whether you are a descendant of Ham or Shem or Japheth, God still calls you. And so this chapter, what it tells me is that God counts... And God calls every nation, every people. Remember last week we said Acts 17 tells us in verses 26 to 28 that from one man, God made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and that they might just maybe find him, though he is, what did we say last week, not far. For in him we shall live and move and have our being. So God knows and he calls because perhaps... If we're told one more time, someone might realize that they're not far from God. You might be here today and not even sure why. Maybe you found us online and you're watching and you're not even sure why you're still watching this preacher wander around this passage. And maybe you think you are far from God. But I came this morning to tell you you're not. And so that brings me to a couple of closing questions that I'll hit very quickly and I'll be done. So write down number three, the questions. And I've kind of been wandering around this barn for a minute. The first question is this, what divides the earth? And the answer is Jesus. Not in the sense that he wants us to be separate, but that is the definer. Jesus or not Jesus. That's the definer. Talking this morning with a new friend and said, listen, it's going to come down to this. What did you do with Jesus? The question is, do you know him or not? The question is, do you worship him or not? Will you come to him or not? Would you be with him or not? Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. You don't have to be a Baptist, but you need to be a Jesus worshiper. Because Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That's what he said in John 14.6. 
So question number one is what divides, what makes the definition? It's Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? The second question is this. Why then do we need to draw near to God? Because we are under the attack of a great hunter. Bible says he prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the only answer is to submit to Jesus. James 4, 7 to 10 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We, we get that out of order. We're trying to fight him off, fight him off, fight him off. And that's not what it says. It says submit to God. If you will turn to Jesus, if you will submit to Jesus, he'll do the fighting for you. I heard a preacher say years ago that when we submit to Jesus, then when Satan rings the doorbell, God answers the door. And Satan says, got the wrong house. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me repeat that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts because you're double-minded Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is that saying? It's saying, I got to die first before I can be alive. And then verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Stop trying to make your way. Stop trying to make a name for yourself and humble yourself and become nothing before God and let him lift you up. Submit, resist, resist. And he will flee. Draw near and you will find that he is near to you. See, I said it this way last week. He is as far away from you as he ever will be when you turn your head. And he is right there when you turn your head back. Cleanse, purify, die to self, humble yourself, and he will exalt you. See, that's what Ham missed. All they heard was servant. But listen, from slave to child of God, from destitute to receiver of inheritance, that's what God does if we will submit to him. And God is drawing all men to himself. And when we humble ourselves and draw near to him and he exalts us. John 12, 32 says that I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You see, God wants the nations to worship him. That's what's in Revelation 7, 9. So it brings to the last question. Who's on the Lord's side? That's really what this is about. That's what Moses was asking the children of Israel. Do you remember when they had worshipped the calf at Sinai when Moses was up on the mountain? He came and said, who's on the Lord's side? I like the way Isaiah 50 says it. And I want to read it to you from the New Living Translation because it just kind of has a nice, fresh, today spin on it. It says this in Isaiah 58 through 10. He who gives me justice is near. Who will dare to bring charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Let them appear. See, the the sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? 
Listen, when God declares you innocent, no man can declare you guilty. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord. If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord. So you have to decide. And I want you to know I've already decided, so let me make this statement as I close. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what all of this is wrapped around. The definer is what will you do with Jesus? And Joshua 24, 14 says, Therefore fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and in truth. Get rid of the gods that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. See, these nations may lead, but each of us stand before God and we have to determine what are we going to do with God. It doesn't matter where your family's been. It doesn't even matter where you've been in the past. It's about today. Deciding, I will serve the Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? How will you be defined? It's about what you did with Jesus. And I believe if you're here this morning, God has sovereignly given you one more opportunity to say yes to him. If you're watching us online, this can be a defining moment, a line in the sand where you decide, I will worship God. Doesn't matter what you've said. Doesn't matter what you feel. You decide today, my hope will be in the promises of God. And this is how I will be defined. If that's where you are this morning, could you just pray a prayer of faith? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, this is your defining moment. Could you say something from a heart of faith like this that says, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from you. But today, by faith, I declare you as my Lord. I believe you died for me and I receive that as payment for my sin. And this is how I will be defined as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this is how I will fight my battles as a child of God. If you pray to prayer of faith like that, I believe that you are now in Christ and you are a new creation and the old is past and all things have been made new. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. 
We want to celebrate that with you in a minute. In a minute, we're going to stand to worship him. When we do, there will be uh, pastors here at the front. I'd encourage you just to leave your seat if you would, if you trust us and just come and say, I prayed to receive Christ. Maybe you're still struggling with that and you would say, I, I need to talk about receiving Jesus. Maybe there's somebody that you're praying for that you might want to just separate yourself and find a place here and kneel at the altar or kneel where you are there. Maybe you want to recommit you and your family. We will serve the Lord.